Hello and welcome to the My Workplace Culture podcast. My name is John Bradbury and I'm the founder of Workplace Culture. We help managers develop their leaders with a collaborative mastermind program called Evolving Leaders. On this podcast, I speak to leaders about the cultures that shape them and the cultures they've gone on to shape. My guests are everyday, ordinary people doing extraordinary things at work. They aren't famous, they're just effective leaders. You don't have to be a famous guru to teach how to be an effective leader. These are the unsung heroes of workplaces. In many cases, the people I speak with have developed as leaders and are having a significant impact on many people around them in large workplaces. How can we understand and learn from these influencing skills? I offer some coaching opportunities after each podcast as ways to apply what has been discussed in a pragmatic way. My first guest is the Vice President of Operational Safety at Tallers Australia, Tony Broughton. Tony started his career in engineering before moving into general operations management at major companies, including the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca, where Tony headed operations in both Australia and the UK. Tony is incredibly passionate about the well-being of his employees. We had such a fascinating discussion, I had to spread our chat across two episodes. This first episode explores the cultures that shape Tony, specifically the cultures of blame and shame he experienced as a young worker that made him want to lead and develop better cultures later in his career. So welcome, Tony. Great to see you. Thanks very much, John. Great, uh, great to see you again. Before we start, what I thought, thought I might do, because we're talking about workplace culture today, is just to read a definition of workplace culture, which comes from Ed Shine, who, is, who was an emeritus professor at MIT at Sloan School of Management. And he's um, quite well known in the area of culture in the workplace. He's written a number of books, and he, his definition is um, quite detailed. I thought it'd be worth sharing that with our listeners as a sort of place to start from. So, so Ed Shine's definition of culture is, it's a pattern of shared basic assumptions invented, discovered, or developed by a given group as it learns to cope with its problems of external adaptation and internal integration that has worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore is to be taught to new members of the group as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. It's quite a, quite a detailed definition, but what it says to me is that culture is not a simple thing to impact and it runs deep and a lot of it is going on under the surface. And therefore, you know, as leaders, it, it requires a lot of us, if we, a lot from us, if we want to actually have an impact on that. Does that make sense, that definition? Yeah, it does. Well, he knows a lot more about it than I do, but uh, I certainly <laughs> agree that it's, uh, it's a complex beast and uh, it takes a lot of effort to shift a culture. That's probably one of my key learnings, certainly from a time with AstraZeneca. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort, really concerted effort. Yes, and, and I think um, hopefully we can talk a little bit, a bit about the AstraZeneca experience. Um, and I think what would be the way, the way I'd like to go with the, the podcast is to explore your career experience, if you like, and you know, to share anything that you've learned along the way as a way of offering listeners you know, food for thought, if you like, 
uh, you know, and, and possibly, you know, ways to help people who are currently in a position of leadership, you know, and dealing with the, the challenges of man- of leading a culture. So with that in mind, how, how far back should we go? Um, <laughs> when I was a boy. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've got, I've got your bio here and you studied um, engineering at uh, UTS. Yeah. Uh, Sydney. I actually started studying um, agricultural science of all things, because I, I, I grew really? up on a farm and um, that probably influenced my thinking about culture and leadership in some subtle ways, I guess. Uh, I spent a lot of time on my own and my parents were very trusting. I had a great upbringing and a fair bit of risk-taking involved on a farm, motorcycles and horses and lots of adventures. So I probably grew up, grew up with a, a relatively low need for control and, and I was used to a high level of trust uh, from my parents and the environment I grew up in. And I, I was thinking about yeah, those influences, I, I think that certainly influenced my, my early and, and, and mid-career. And uh, yeah, so having grown up on a farm, I decided the, the natural thing to do was go and study agricultural science, which I actually didn't do so well at, didn't enjoy. So after a couple of years, I switched across into, into engineering. I liked your reference to trust. I think that's a huge part of you know creating a good culture in an organization is if you can develop trust in with employees uh what a massive thing that is to do so um you did engineering then uh, having not worked out with agricultural science and um then after completing your engineering or actually was it during your engineering degree that you you did some work with lion or was that after yeah i I did some uh, cadetships uh, during my engineering studies and then one of one of my first roles not the first but one of my first roles was with lion uh, what was yeah. known at the time as Tui's breweries uh, in, in Sydney. Oh, yeah. Looking after maintenance. Yeah. And that was quite a deep end experience, I've got to say. Uh, I was given a lot more responsibility than I probably should have been given at the time, I think. <laughs> Another trust experience uh, didn't always go well. And it was a pretty tough time for me. I, I actually think it was too, uh, a bit too much too, too soon for me in my career. Um, and whilst I'm certainly an advocate of, of uh, taking a risk with, with people and uh, you know, letting them uh, have some deep end experiences. That one was uh, yeah, quite a challenge and, and quite, a, quite a difficult experience, actually. I was only in my, I think, into late 20s and I had a you know, very large team with a lot of pressure or a lot of pressure in a high-paced environment where if a machine was was to break down, which it did quite frequently in that uh, factory. Yeah, it was it was always urgent and I was always on call. It's a pretty challenging time. Look, I mean, I've got personal experience of working in those sort of environments and I definitely used to, I've seen many a maintenance manager under stress. Yeah. I mean, that, that role is definitely, uh, you know, under the pump most of the time in uh, those high, high-paced environments. So, so I'm curious, I'm going to go with my curiosity here. Um, like when you were there under pressure, you know, sort of feeling like you're in the end of the deep end, were you able to look for support from above? Was that readily available? Uh, to, to some extent, but not always. Uh, and that was one of the challenges. Mm. It was a, uh, in the environment that we were working in, I was actually a contractor providing a maintenance service to the brewery. And so I didn't truly really feel part of the team. 
I felt like a service provider. And uh, to be frank, I got beat up on quite a lot for everything that was going wrong in this large complex plant. And uh, I got some good support from um, my within my own organisation and from, from my leaders, but, but not always. And there was one particular moment I remember where I, I didn't feel that support and it was quite... Um, was quite disheartening and it certainly didn't help me uh, sort of push through the challenges when I didn't feel that I was trusted. I felt like I was being micromanaged. And I think as you go through your career, you, you learn from great experiences of leadership that you see around you, whether it's your own manager or somebody else. You also learn from not so great experiences. And uh, I think you've got to learn to appreciate both of those. I've learned some great things from some really fantastic, supportive, inspiring leaders and managers of my own. Um, but on the other hand, I've learned some important lessons as well about perhaps those things I would note down as yeah, what not to do. And, and, and they're just as valuable uh, as experiences, I think. It doesn't feel great at the time, but looking back, yeah, they were valuable experiences and there were certainly some of those experiences during that time at Lyon. Yeah, I, I imagine... Like having had that experience, you're in a better position to see other people in the organization now who may be struggling and offer a helping hand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you've got to um, give give young leaders some rope and let them make some mistakes on their own, but you've also got to make sure that the support's there um, so that they don't sink. It's pretty important. Yeah, great. That's That's a good one. And as a matter of interest, you were in that role under pressure. Was it the was it the challenge of fixing equipment that was creating the pressure, or was it more about the relationships with people around you and that created the pressure, or both? Uh, look, the the equipment doesn't yell at you. <laughs> the equipment doesn't really give you a hard time on Monday morning after a uh, after a weekend yeah. with lots of breakdowns. It was the people. That, uh, that that give you a hard time and yeah. Uh, yeah there were some good times at that plant but uh i i do actually remember yeah some some pretty without being too dramatic some dark days particularly mondays after a weekend uh of of lots of breakdowns and uh and uh yeah i remember not feeling um a sense of collaboration or not feeling a sense that we were in this together yeah, there was quite a bit of blame and uh, finger pointing and uh, an accusation and uh, that really took the wind out of my sails you know I, uh, I was still quite a young engineer at the time and finding my feet and um, working out uh, not only how to deal with the technical side of the problem but how to uh, work through these complex relationships which which felt quite one-sided it was me with uh, I don't know half a dozen uh, brewery managers on the other side of the table um, and it felt um, yeah it felt like quite a battle at times and that must have been quite a um, a rude awakening so to speak after growing up in a an environment where you felt a lot of trust yeah. so to go from that trust to a lack of yeah. trust must have been yeah I can imagine that would have been um, uh, very challenging yeah. so it sounds like you gritted your teeth and uh and just uh, went through on determination. Yeah, for as long as I could, John. It didn't last a long time. Uh, it was a, it yeah. was a couple of years, and I did learn a lot. But a, a new opportunity came along, and 
let's put it this way, it didn't take much convincing for me to uh, to take that new opportunity and, uh, and see what was in yes. store. And that was, uh, if I'm correct, operations manager at Shearing Plough, is yeah. that right? Yeah, I got yeah. this call from Shearing Plough and I'd never heard of the company. I, my first instinct, I thought it had something to do with agriculture, shearing and ploughs. Um, I worked out pretty quickly. It was a pharmaceutical company, what's now known as Merck. And uh, I really relished in that in that opportunity. I felt like I found my home and my my place uh, in uh, in the Great. world from an industry and work perspective. So really enjoyed that time. So that was a call that just came out of the blue, was it? That are you interested in an yeah. operations manager's yeah. role? Yeah. Somebody must have given them your yeah. name. Yeah, and I uh, I was interviewed by a chap who. You know, I, I would a great deal of thanks to talk about career learnings. Uh, John Owen was his name. And um, I remember during the interview process, uh, the final interview stage, he uh, sort of folded his arms and took a deep breath. And he, uh, he said, look, Tony, I've, I've got uh, a number of candidates who've got a lot more experience and uh, a lot more credential than you uh, uh, would, would be would be better suited to the role, but uh, I'm actually going to take a bit of a chance with you and, uh, and, and give you this opportunity. I was still still fairly young, and I'm really thankful John did, and I learned a lot from that myself about you know, taking a chance with people and looking for potential and uh, getting behind people who you think have got potential. Taking a chance, yeah. What do you think it was that he saw in you? Well, I. I don't really know, but uh, I guess uh, why I uh, relished that opportunity once I secured that role uh, was um, it, it seemed to bring together uh, sort of my technical um, uh, DNA as, as an engineer uh, with this interest that I was still still discovering and this uh, passion, I guess you'd call it now, for, for people and for leading people. And... Um, it was it was an intersection of those two things at that company where, and again with with a lot of trust. John was a very trusting manager, really let me fly, and um, I was uh, quite quickly given a, a lot of responsibility for some multi million dollar projects. And quite frankly, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no experience in the pharmaceutical industry. I just had to learn. I had to uh, gather information from other experienced people. Um, and so again, that trust equation played out you know, really strongly there. I felt trusted, I felt empowered, um, I felt supported, um, and and I I flourished in that environment. I got a lot of confidence from that. Yeah, it sounds like it was very different from the previous. Yeah, it was, it was role. quite a contrast. Yeah. Um, and how how big was the team there at uh, Shearing Plough? Initially, that you initially it was fairly small. I think maybe eight or ten people, um, and then within Within eighteen months, that was more like uh, forty or fifty uh, running the running running the factory. So it was a small factory, and unfortunately, it's no longer there. And it's gone the way of the, much of the pharmaceutical manufacturing sector has gone in Australia. But um, that's probably where I really got grounding and 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 found my feet in leading people um, and understanding the challenges and you know learning some of the the techniques that have served me since. The fact that you were trusted then would, um, I guess, um, affect your leadership style. So it, it, someone who feels trusted in a role 
is is going to lead very differently from someone who feels no trust. Yeah, there's this school of thought that says you know, trust has to be earned, uh, which suggests that you're starting from a point of zero trust, which is a very difficult place from which to build trust. Uh, I think my sense working with John at Shearing Plough was I started at 100% trust. The trust wasn't earned. It was granted. And then I had to maintain it. And so a different way of thinking about, uh, about the starting point uh, you know, John made a decision that I was trustworthy and made a judgment that uh, that he would trust me. And then I had to maintain that trust through performance. I think that's a better way of, of, of thinking about the trust equation. But it is absolutely central, I think, to how a person feels about their work and um, whether they feel confident. Because um, I think trust builds confidence. I think trust builds enthusiasm. And that leads to higher effort, higher discretionary effort, uh, as opposed to an environment where there's a lot of micromanagement and um, where the mm. trust is lacking. And that was certainly my experience at Shearing Plough. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and it's a good point you make about starting with trust, because doesn't it sound weird? You know, we're going to we're going to employ you, but we're going to start with zero trust. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't make sense. Doesn't I think that happens. That yeah, I, I think um, the benefits of starting by trusting people far outweigh the other way. You start from this position of trust, and then it just grows. It, you know, that's highly likely to grow as things develop. So, and it sounds like that's what happened with you at uh, the Cheering Plough. Was was there were there any key moments there that you recall at all um, that um, were part of your experience? Yeah, look, I remember one day. You talk about learning from mistakes and um, and trust plays into this again. But uh, there was one day where the team uh, had uh, forgotten to install a filter on a fluid bed dryer. And uh, so they went about filling this fluid bed dryer with uh, a, a drug substance. It was actually uh, uh, an antihistamine product designed for people who suffer hay fever and the like. And uh, so Phil filled up this machine and switched it on. And because the filter was was missing, it, it, it we blew two tons of drug product straight out the side of the building and, and onto a golf driving range next door. So um, I think all of the golfers for the next month or two would have had very clear nasal passages, but... Yeah, that, that was a couple of million dollar mistake. And you know, not only did the operator feel terrible about that, but I, as a production manager, uh, it had never happened before. And so you immediately start worrying about what the reaction is going to be, what the response is, is going to be. And uh, I, I distinctly remember my manager saying, well, that's a, that, that's a $2 million training exercise. I'm pretty sure we won't do that again. Uh, and that was it. And of course, we had to go and understand what happened and make sure that we had uh, arrangements in place to prevent that from happening again. But I, I was really impressed, I guess, by the the grace and the understanding and the willingness to learn rather than to just blame and uh, and criticise, which really wouldn't have wouldn't have helped us get better as an organisation in that moment. So I've learned a lot from that and many other stories like that over the years. Um, how important it is to Yes, hold people accountable, but the, the 
the path of blame is, uh, uh, I think, a road to nowhere. And you know, seeking to learn um, and considering all of the factors around, around and about when, when something goes wrong, rather than just who, who made a mistake. Because uh, we're humans, we're fallible, we will make mistakes, it's completely normal, and uh, it shouldn't be a surprise. So uh, even in the last few years, I've been trying to learn more about how to avoid a blame culture, how to create a learning culture. Yes. One where yeah. you um, learn when things are going well, but also learn when things are not going so well. Look, I'm just uh, making some notes here, because I, th I think that's such a big point. You know, things are always going to go wrong. And the way the sort of conversations we have around that um, are so important because everyone's watching as well. It's like when something goes wrong, everyone's, you know, oh, how's this, what's going to happen now sort of thing. And so in those moments, I think they're key moments for reinforcing whatever the culture is that you have. Yeah. You know, if we go back to um, Shine's definition, you know, it's like what sort of assumption do we want to create amongst our people about the way uh, problems are handled? And um, I think clearly we want to create an assumption that it's going to be handled respectfully and we're going to learn from the mistake. Uh, but if it's a blame thing, then that's just a totally different dynamic in an organization. I, I've experienced both. And, um, you know, it's refreshing to work in a culture where you don't get hammered for a mistake, but you are expected to learn from it. I mean, that's, that's mm. a natural course of action. But then you're, you're more willing to take risks, I think, you know, to, to, get, to get great results if you know that you're not going to get hammered for a mistake. Absolutely, John. Yeah, um, the, yeah. The, the, uh, it, it leads to that uh, greater desire to take calculated risks. If people know that uh, the environment is such that they're not going to get hammered for, for making a mistake. It also, and arguably more importantly, leads to a culture of transparency where nothing is left under the table. Everything is on the table. Um, and problems are seen as opportunities to improve and grow. Yes, there has to be accountability and resolution, but um, as soon as you've got a culture that where blame is, you know, is, is a feature, then things will go under the table and things will be left unsaid and mistakes will, worst case, be covered up and tracks covered. Uh, and that can lead to all sorts of problems culturally, uh, from a safety point of view, for example, uh, from a relationship point of view, uh, if things aren't uh, cleaned up after uh, after a relationship problem, uh, these can also be left to fester. So an environment where people feel comfortable and confident to speak up and speak out about things. Yes. It's really important. Absolutely foundational. Yeah, look, I think it, you know, if people are willing to say, I made that mistake, um, you know, that was me. Uh, you know you've got a good culture then if people are, are saying that sort of thing because um, you know, there's an openness about that. And um, like you described, you know, the knock-on effects in either example are big. You know, it's like you can either have a really positive knock-on effect by having that openness and honesty, or you can have quite a negative knock-on effect and ripple through the team by hiding things. And leaders uh, so, perhaps... More so, the, the more 
willing they are to share their mistakes and be transparent mm. and vulnerable and honest and authentic. I think that builds um, a greater sense of uh, of uh, transparency right through an organisation. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's more important for leaders to do that than anything else and, and lead by example. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, that, that sort of, um, that speaks to, um, I think, a commitment to self-development. Um, and, you know, when, when a leader's building their own self-awareness and the messages that they're sending, then if they're willing to keep looking at themselves and commit to their own development, then the chances are they're going to create a, an improving culture as they go along. Because not everyone comes into this, you know, into leadership with a natural authenticity and, and, and those skills that you've just described. So I think there are things that you can develop, um, but you, you need to, you know, we come back to that trust thing again. You need to be um, in a position where you're, you feel like you're trusted in order to show that vulnerability and, and develop those, you know, those skills of authenticity and openness and honesty. Um, so, you know, it's a ch that's, you know, we're touching on how hard it is to change a culture because if you've got leaders who don't demonstrate those qualities, getting them to demonstrate those qualities, you know, that, that development path, first of all, they have to be even willing to look at that and then, and then engage in, you know, in, you know, in a process of, um, self-development, which, you know, not everyone is prepared to do that absolutely goes to the heart john of the challenge of culture change the mm. leaders have to want to change themselves and yeah. many leaders that i know and probably most but not all uh, have have worked on themselves it hasn't just happened by accident they've made their way into into the leadership role that they're in the the the, the folly or the mistake uh, that that's perhaps too easy to make is when leaders take a position that everybody else needs to change um, without first looking looking here in, in inside themselves. And my first experience was of, the, of that was one that, that wasn't voluntary, actually. I, I was told, I was offered, told, I was offered an opportunity to go on a leadership development program. And uh, that was great. I, I grabbed that with both hands and... Uh, and really enjoyed it but it's not something I would have necessarily automatically done myself so it took my leader uh, to take the initiative to send me on this program and the program involved feedback and 360 and uh, it was brutal I learned a lot about myself and uh, that I didn't know and uh, so you know that there began a journey of I guess discovering my my blind spots and my strengths and and starting to work on those, um, but it took an act from from my manager to actually initiate that, and um, yeah, so important lesson there I guess is uh, people won't automatically be in that mode of self discovery of uh, self self improvement and uh, sharpening their leadership skills. Sometimes it's a leader's role to be the catalyst for, for someone else uh, to, to get into that mode. But one thing's for sure, if leaders at the top of an organisation aren't 
committed to and, and willing to continue to shape their leadership right through their career. It, it, it shouldn't stop when you reach 40 or 50. I think it's got to be ongoing. If, they, if they're not willing uh, to do that, uh, to work, continue to work on themselves, then they can't reasonably expect everybody else in the organisation to change. I think there's got to be a quid, quid pro quo. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I've not, I've not, I'm not seeing that work where you know a senior person takes that I'm okay position, but you're not. Uh, you, you've got some development to do, but I'm all right. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to work. Whereas you know the role modeling of self development is a very powerful, um, is a very powerful tool, you know, and. and um, you know, it's not, it's a non-verbal thing. And it's like, if I look at my leader and see them working on themselves, it's just such a powerful message. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it gives me permission to do that with my, with myself. And, um, you know, like you, I was um, uh, actually one of the people who had the most powerful effect on me was someone like that, who invested in me, showed constant um, interest in my development and that was a guy called Paul Bennett um, who was a leader at um, Arnott's and he he was constantly interested in my development and uh, you know you never forget that sort of interest you never forget that that influence and um, it's very it powerful leaves a mark. and it does it leaves a mark and um, yeah I think it's good that we're touching on this in this discussion because anyone who's listening uh, will either uh, agree or maybe learn a little bit about this, you know, about the importance of doing this, or they've already had some experience where where they'll agree with what we're saying. Very good. Um, so shall we move on from Shearing Plough? Um, you moved then in 2005, Tony, to what's become a household name now, um, AstraZeneca, for uh, recent events. Um, you, you moved to uh, AstraZeneca's operations manager in Sydney and you were there for three years. Um, so tell us a little bit about that experience. How, how was that different from Shearing Plough? Um, was it different yeah, from Shearing Plough? When, uh, when I joined the pharmaceutical industry with Shearing Plough and started networking and getting to know people in the industry, AstraZeneca was held up as you know, one of the pinnacle organisations and uh, when I arrived at AstraZeneca, I, I found that to be true or, or deserved. Uh, they really did things and I believe continue to do things very well, very high level of professionalism and, um, and perfectionism, uh, which, which you, you'd like to expect from a pharmaceutical company making things that get uh, injected, inhaled and ingested. So uh, no, I was really impressed with the um, the, the, the high standards um, in in every aspect of the work, uh, the facility, um, and 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 the investment in culture, and the investment in leadership, the investment okay. in people. I saw it right across the organisation. Really high standards. They had an awareness of culture, and they wanted to get that right. And they were prepared to put their money where their mouth was. Yeah, basically. I think during the time I was there, the the awareness grew, and there was a change in the global CEO uh, to uh, mm -hmm. Pascal Sorio, who is still the CEO today, and he certainly brought 
an increased focus on culture at a, at a global level. And I saw something of a transformation happen over the following years through that, through that focus and through that investment. Uh, we spoke earlier about uh, culture being a difficult thing to, to change and uh, requires a lot of effort and, and investment. And I certainly saw that during the time at, at AstraZeneca, that, that level of commitment at the most senior level of the company uh, it was the first thing Pascal spoke about. And when you uh, watch his, his videos online, it's still today the first thing he, he speaks about in, in most contexts. He, he really values you know, getting the cultural settings right so that people can thrive uh, in the workplace and, and do their best work. It was, it was a real privilege, quite frankly, to be part of that journey from, from the early days when there were a number of uh, events and activities and discussions and yeah, quite a bit of soul searching as well. Um, employee surveys and, and uh, which can sometimes be quite brutal when you when you read the feedback for the first time. But uh, yeah, the organisation really embraced that and, and got on that journey in a serious way. And I think within just a few years, those engagement scores started to lift and you started to feel a change. So it was a great example of what is possible even in a large organization I think we were 60 65,000 people strong at the time and you did start to see a shift uh, within within two or three years a noticeable shift a positive shift did that journey then involve like conversations about these things with employees this you know it's like often in in these FMCG environments the priority is getting the product mm. out at a high quality, low cost, and that's where the main focus is. When when it comes to culture, that's a completely different conversation, isn't it? It's like a, it's it's like how we work together rather than what we're doing. Yes, it's it's um, one level removed from from what's in front of you today. You know the the objectives and yeah. the targets and the priorities of the of the moment. And it, it took a while to get used to that type of conversation for me and I think for many others it, it felt historically like culture was the domain of HR and that they would look after that and uh, you know people would describe it as sort of warm and fuzzy or, you know, the soft aspects of of, of work and um, I guess it took a while for us to to um, adapt and get used to those conversations and for them to actually create some value and some meaning but yes to answer your first question there were extensive conversations more than one um, many many conversations that unfolded over over years and i i got to experience that here in australia uh, workshops uh, local workshops global workshops team-based workshops and then later in my time with AstraZeneca in, in the UK, again, continued workshops and discussions to really try to get to the heart of what would make a difference. Um, but it all started from this belief that a strong, positive culture will lead to better performance. And perhaps it's a leap of faith still for some people today, but uh, I think AstraZeneca has proved out that theory over the last 10 or so years, um, a bit more than that now. And um, yeah, because it, it, it goes to things like staff retention, staff performance, discretionary effort. Um, these things can be a bit difficult to measure, but uh, 
the investment is is the thing that probably when I reflect back, John, uh, the investment of time and resources to to have those, to allow those conversations and to respond to them, and to follow up, and not to just leave them hanging as some, some nice conversations that we had to, to actually do something about it, um, particularly when it came to shaping leadership and leadership practices and behaviours and norms in the company um, and setting high standards around that. Yeah, there's some really practical things that came out of those discussions. From what you're saying, it was, you were, it, the company was fortunate to have someone at the top who had that as part of their focus and, and has remained there consistently, you know, doing that consistently. Absolutely. Um, you know, because, it, because it's definitely not a quick fix. Um, and if you, you know, often those roles at the top of an organization are um, a revolving turnstile. And so, you know, you're constantly introducing a new influence on the culture. So that makes it more difficult to be consistent, I think. Um, but I'm curious about um, in those years then with um, AstraZeneca, what did it uh, draw from you in terms of your, you know, having those conversations, which is a different sort of conversation? What what did it uh, demand of you uh, as a person, as a leader that was different? Yeah, I think it was in that phase of my journey, some some call it the, the career transition phase where you're um, deciding and working out you know, where your career is going to go, mm. whether you're going to remain a, a technical specialist, a manager, or whether you're going to become a, a generalist and, and focus more on general broad leadership. And uh, throughout that period, I think, the, the constant through that for, for all of the leaders at, at, at the company was uh, reflecting on one's own leadership capability constantly, not once, uh, not once a year, um, but through a series of interactions and leadership discussions, forums. And, um, you know, the company wasn't trying to be too formulaic about it and, and create... Uh, this kind of completely uniform uh, set of practices where everybody had to comply. It wasn't that sort of approach, um, but it was it was expected that leaders would um, would reflect, would uh, seek feedback, and would act on that feedback. And that was deeply, or became deeply part of of the way of working of the company. And so, again, for me, and that's that's the moment I referred to earlier, where I had that first experience of seeking feedback in a very formal way and reflecting on that. And I did that more than once during my eight years uh, with AZ. And I probably learned more through that experience about myself, about my blind spots, about things I needed to work on than anything mm. else. And um, yeah, I really appreciate that experience. And was, how did, um, you know, in a hierarchy of an organisation, it's like, um, making it safe to give feedback about your boss or your boss's boss was that made possible um, in AstraZeneca? Were, were people willing to own their feedback, or was it done anonymously? How was yeah, that handled? Was, I think in the early years it was anonymous. It was a classical three hundred and sixty survey where there's uh, people give you some ranking on different questions, and then there's some free text and 
yeah, the temptation was to spend a bit of time trying to work out who said what. <laughs> but uh, I think the environment was such that um, you know, within two or three years, probably shifted to more transparent, um, direct face-to-face -face feedback where that became the norm. The thing I learned there was to, you know, feedback can be difficult to give for the giver, especially to the manager. And so you've got to create that safe environment um, and you've got to give them a bit of warning and a bit of setup. Um, simply asking somebody for feedback without notice, I don't know, at the end of the meeting can be a bit of a, a throwaway. Um, if you're really intent on getting serious feedback, I think giving people some time to prepare, collect their thoughts um, and, and make their point uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, you, you owe it to your people to set that up. And I think giving people the opportunity to provide feedback anonymously is, is good. That can be helpful. Um, I think it's good to try to graduate from that as well as trust within a team builds and um, to be able to get to a point where um, feedback is, is continuous um, and it's uh, in the moment and it's specific and it's anchored in a, in a specific moment, not, not uh, generic. I think you've got to aim to get to that place, but you've got to start perhaps at a more basic level. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's quite a skill, I think, to be present enough first to give feedback in the moment and then to find the right words. And um, you know, if we're trying to, when we're trying to get, make it safe for people to give feedback up the organization uh, from, you know, in the hierarchy, that that's a very challenging thing to do. And I think that takes time. It's like one of, one of the key things is not to react emotionally to anything negative that's coming at you because people then tend to listen to the emotion rather than what you're saying. Yeah. Now what people will watch very carefully. If, you know, if, if I'm giving my boss feedback, I'm going to be careful and watch to see whether she or he has an emotional response. Yeah. Um, and then that will tell me whether it's safe or not. So if it's met with a negative emotional response, I'm much less likely to, repeat that yes. experiment and i think the, the most so, important response uh, when you're receiving feedback is thank you and mm. to really acknowledge and and thank the person um and then to show a commitment to do something with it and uh, something yeah, i learned yeah. from the manager who having received some feedback and i think most of that had been delivered anonymously he played back the feedback in summary to the team uh, explained the actions that he was going to take and then asked the team to hold him accountable for those actions over the coming weeks and months. I thought that was great. That showed a real, it showed that he'd listened. It showed that he was committed to action and, and it further reinforced the transparent sort of open culture that he was trying to create. I thought it was a really good practice. Oh, look, I think, I think that's like a level of maturity that is required really to create the right culture. Mm. Um, and, but it is something that I think that's a skill that can be learned. It's, it's like, but it takes time. You know, it's like, it's like a willingness to understand sometimes, you know, I might have an emotional reaction to someone's feedback, but I don't want that to overwhelm me and dominate the proceedings. 
and um you know maybe the answer is you know it's like i've got to learn to listen better and be and get curious about the feedback i think it's better to go with curiosity than defense absolutely uh yeah if i come back with defense yeah tell me more that's right you know can you expand on that you know and and then uh and then try and try and get a really thorough understanding and 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 let that uh and then it's like recognizing the emotional reaction if there is one and just putting it to one side is a skill that can be learned but takes time um i speak from experience (laughs) yeah okay very good so um so you with astrazeneca then you you began your career in sydney but then you had this um amazing experience of well you became the director of supply and manufacturing for a couple of years in 2008 that was in, here sydney. in sydney yeah yeah so so in other words you took on greater responsibility by the looks of things uh, probably did that involve more people yeah i think that was a team of about 500 at the time yeah right okay so that's pretty significant um so going from operations manager to a team of 500 then as director of supply and manufacturing what how is that switch how has that changed for you did was that um a significant move at the time from what you remember i I don't doesn't feel like a a particularly enormous change when i when i think back on it um Mm -hmm. but it uh it was it was during a, a really interesting time for the company and uh i can talk about this because it's in the public domain but there were a lot of challenges um to you know rationalize uh, the footprint of astrazeneca around the world and um and uh, to to make a long story short it, it led to a decision that uh, the australian operations would need to close and so that was a very difficult uh time uh to to navigate and and to lead the team through and um not something you ever want to do to have to announce uh, closure of, of, of an organization or a site or a factory uh, re- really difficult um, and uh, but still like we were talking about earlier you, you learn lessons through you know the good and the bad times uh, through the, the mount- on, on the mountains but also on the valleys and um, and uh, I, I think I learned there again the importance of of transparency. And uh, whilst it was difficult to tell people everything that was going on, uh, I think that commitment to telling people uh, as soon as possible once we knew what was happening, um, and um, I think people appreciated that, even though it was you know, it was a really difficult announcement for people. In the end. That closure didn't go ahead, and the and the factory is thriving and has had uh, huge investments in Australia yes. since. But uh, yeah, yeah, you um, you learn from these experiences for sure. Well, that must have been a bit of a roller coaster for everybody. It was, yeah. We had uh, people who were obviously devastated. Uh, the operations had been uh, there at Northride for for decades, uh, so it was it's quite a quite a shock. And then you had a small number of people who were actually quite happy and uh, were looking forward to the next chapter and getting a bit of financial support to 
to do something else. So uh, and then when the decision was uh, later changed, yeah, you had a whole lot of different mixed emotions uh, as well. So tricky times to navigate, that's for sure. Yeah, I would have. I'd imagine that must have been quite challenging to say the least. Um, so, uh, you know, taking people through that roller coaster of you know you haven't got a job. Oh, now you have got a job. Um, how did you? Uh, what approach did you take to that? Was that was that a um, a lot of conversations going on at the time? And um, yeah, I think communications I think the, with the, the overall. Yeah, what what helped us was was um, and, and we brought in some external advice to help us get this right. But there was there was a lot of planning, so that was the first thing. The conversations that we needed to have and the communications that needed to be delivered were were very highly planned. Uh, not, we we didn't make things up on the fly. We were quite particular, and embedded throughout all those communications I think we tried to respect the individual and the impact on the individual and really understand you know it's, it's personal this one of these sayings you hear in business yeah it's not personal it's business well it is personal mm. for the person on mm. the receiving end it's very personal oh yeah and yes. so just being aware of that impact and um, mm. anticipating it planning for it being respectful of people's emotions and um, taking time to, to walk people through this change. You know, mm. I'll never forget announcing the closure. And I thought I'd been quite clear. Um, but then a hand went up in the room during the question time and, and the gentleman asked, uh, so does that mean the factory is closing? And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that he hadn't uh, understood what I'd said. But it was a real lesson for me that uh, sometimes you've got to say things multiple times uh, in multiple different ways for people to understand. And you've got to respect that um, everybody processes information a bit differently. But I think the main thing, John, was um, just respecting the individual, acknowledging the impact on people, um, you know, moving beyond you know, the reasons and the rationale and the business case to just acknowledging that this is hard, you know, this is a, this is going to impact uh, on, on our people, and um, we regret that, and we don't um, you know, back away from the decision, um, but we also um, respect the impact on people. I think that was really important, and and the team that were part of, you know, planning all of those interactions, communications and meetings. So I think they did a great job and we received good feedback from staff that even though it was a, a regrettable decision, they felt that yes, the, not only the, the decision, but then the, the conversations and the actions that followed were showed a lot of respect for people. You know, even as people were starting yeah. to leave the business, um, which a few did. Um, before the decision was reversed yeah that, that sense of being respected even in the midst of, of a yeah. tough decision what i'm as you're speaking here what i'm struck by is um something like that affects those individuals but then it ripples through their families yeah and i can tell you in that so, situation it was a it was a rocky landscape it was mm. it was rocky it was uh it was a lot for people to take in as, as you'd expect yeah some people have been with the company 30 35 plus years 
a whole professional career. So, yes, yeah. And then you know they've got mortgages and things like that, and mm. you know it's like the suddenly the the world their world isn't as stable as it was the day before. So, uh, you know, it's quite a quite a responsibility, isn't it? I guess you felt that at the time. Yeah, absolutely, um, deeply. And uh, but I think that's that's important. That's good to feel that that pressure and oh, yeah. weight uh, as a leader to handle those situations well and not to do so. Um, with any sense of uh, distance, I guess. Um, and it was going to affect different people in different ways. Some people were going to stay with the company. And I, I was going to be staying with the company. So uh, just recognising that as well, that um, the impacts were going to be felt unevenly. Yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, thankfully, uh, that was reversed. And uh, yeah, as you say, you know, that, that site has gone from strength to strength. Indeed. Um, since then which is great news that was the first episode with Tony Broughton here are some coaching moments from today's show use negative experiences of leadership to learn and, and identify how you want to lead and treat the people you lead what is it you don't want to role model can you identify three times you observed leadership behavior that showed you what not to do? How are you managing mistakes? Are you looking for someone to blame or are you helping people to learn from their mistakes without humiliating them? How did you manage the last mistake a team member made? As a leader, have you made a commitment to develop yourself? What actions have you taken in the last 12 months to develop your skills as a leader of people? If you're curious to hear more about Tony's experiences, look for episode two in your podcast app. In the second episode, we hear about Tony's experience leading AstraZeneca's operations in the UK, and we dig deeper into the challenge of leading workplace culture 